Is it gonna let me go? Okay, guys. Um, anybody that's watching Facebook, I apologize. I don't know what the technical difficulties were with the Ramsland interview, but she's gonna come back on the week after next. So I apologize to everybody. I don't know what the audio issues were. If you guys can find me. So okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna go ahead and read from. I'm gonna go yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and read from. Uh, from uh, Lizzie Borden tonight. I apologize for any of this. Uh, it's just it just didn't happen tonight. Okay. So if you guys can find me on Facebook, I think no one's there. Um, let me get people directed over. Hang on, let's get this. I gotta get some people directed over before I do this. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to get a hold of some people here. Hang on one second. This is insane what happened just now. But the problem we have is that we had some audio difficulties with her. So let me do this. Yeah, I just canceled the whole thing by accident. I didn't mean to cancel it either. Let me see if I can call. Okay. I got people coming in. Anyway, I'm sorry about that. I don't know what was going on. I think it was from her end with the mic. Because I'm clear. I don't know what was going on with that. And the thing is, when I canceled out, <laughs> I canceled the whole thing. And she didn't feel like, you know, because it was getting later for her. So, you know, so we decided to go uh, the week after. So we're going to go the week out. We're going to go the week after next with her. Anyway, as soon as I can get some people in here, I'm going to go ahead and read Lizzie Borden from Lizzie Borden tonight instead. We'll go ahead and read from that and get that done. Well, it's a bummer, though. I feel bad for her. But uh, I'll go. I'll call her after the show. Actually, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and book her. I have. I don't know what was going on with the audio. So let me give you guys a couple more minutes, and then we'll we'll, we'll launch the show officially at seven, and read from Lizzie Borden. I thought it was my headphones at first. It's right. I started to unplug myself. So that's fine. Um, just get people in. So hopefully you guys can find me on Facebook and everything. I'm, I'm back on all the networks. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. <laughs> Do this the second time to be your host. And let me write an email to her. While I'm waiting for you guys to pop in, let, let, let me write an email to her. Okay. Figure out some dates here. I'm going to, I don't even know if I can open this up. Computer's been having issues all night, and I don't know what his trip is, and... It's start, you ever get to the point where it's starting to reach you and you just want to get a gun and shoot the computer? That's where I'm at right now. So, okay. So I am going to read Lizzie Borden here. Oh, there it is. Let me try and close that. I even had open office freeze up on me, and it usually doesn't do that. And I don't know why that happened. So I'll get some dates out to Catherine. She's a good sport about it. Let me get in here real quick. Of course it crashed. Okay, so I'm just giving people a few more minutes before I start reading from Lizzie Borden. And, okay, there we go. I had stuff freezing up, so I don't know. Just, I, you know, everybody has to remember that. My computer is underpowered. Like me, it's underpowered. Okay, all right. Let me look at some dates here real quick. So I'm going to email her back and get her on. That was going to be a good show, too. Okay, so I'm just giving people some time to come on and find us. 
again. Okay, I see there's a couple of you on. Let me know who's here, and I think you'll find me as we go. I apologize. There was something going on with her end, and I should have just cut it off to, for a phone call, but, I mean, it's getting to the point where it's real late, and she wanted to go at 6.30, and she's over on the East Coast. So we'll go ahead and accommodate that. She said she would return on uh, not this this coming week, but the week after. So we'll go ahead and do that. So what I'm going to do tonight, guys, because we, we're two hours away from finishing Lizzie Borden anyway, I want to go ahead and read Lizzie Borden tonight. And then uh, Sunday will be the last Lizzie Borden book, okay? So let me go ahead and read that. And uh, then we'll have Catherine on in a couple weeks, okay? In a week and a half or so. Anything that can go wrong, well, I don't know what that was about. But we were getting some kind of weird mic interference. So bear with me. We'll get Lizzie Borden up here and get rolling. I should have called her back, but I didn't want to go through that with her and have her get her phone and all that. Okay. In, hind in hindsight. So let me open this up. So again, I apologize for any, you know, issues this caused. Anybody that took time out for the show, unfortunately, it's not happening. There were, like, errors going on with it, so that show is dead. I'll have to remove it from everywhere. Gives me something extra to do. I had a good intro, too. I'm going to keep my intro. Okay, so let me get Lizzie, let's get all Lizzie boarding up. Weird day, weird day, computer was acting weird, weird day. Just one of them days, now it's feeling good too. <laughs> so I'll get a hold of her and email her tonight, I'll text her. Okay, so when we left Lizzie, she's now out of jail, she bought a new house, she and her sister are living in this new house, and so here we go. So it's now 651. I'll read till 751 tonight. Property and problems. Charles C. Cook had been Andrew Borden's right-hand man. Let me do this real quick. Charles C. Cook had been Andrew Borden's right-hand man when it came to managing Mr. Borden's growing portfolio of properties. Upon Andrew's death, Mr. Cook was retained, was retained by Lizzie and Emma, by Lizzie and Emma Borden to continue in that capacity. For the two women who found the ownership of one house on Ferry Street daunting, the burden of maintaining and overseeing city blocks of buildings, farm acreage, and sundry homes would have caused more than one sleepless night. Arson. While Fall River was no stranger to fires, indeed, the Spindle City had more than its fair share of flames. The plethora of fires that scorched the Borden sisters' properties would fall close to being unbelievable. Two weeks after Lizzie's acquittal on June 23, 1893, a fire of undetermined origin broke out at Andrew Borden's newly acquired Birchland properties. The buildings at 94 through 98 South Main suffered structural damage in the sum of $434. The tenants lost 645 in inventory and furnishings. On November 28, 1893, shortly after Lizzie's return from the Chicago World's Fair, the A.J. Borden building came close to going up in flames when a row of wooden buildings to its north burned. The firefighters determined the blaze was of an incendiary nature, meaning it had probably been the work of an arsonist. Among the fallen properties were an apothecary, Charles A. Baker, an, underta an undertaking firm, Luke and James Watson, a bookseller and stationery shop, Robert Adams, and, and a boots and shoe store owned by Humphrey and William Henry Crable. The row of buildings had been nicknamed Asbestos Row due to the many fires set there by arsonists. That two, that two of Andrew's dearest holdings were in the arsonist crosshairs is unique. It was just the beginning. 
Over the next eight years, six more fires would break out in the Andrew J. Borden building and other properties the sisters inherited. Their respective dates are interesting as they tend to coincide with traumatic events in Lizzie's life. 1. The Birch Street, the Birch Land Fire in early July 19, 1893 may have coincided with the possible exclusion from the wedding list of Lizzie's cousin, Mary Emma Borden. Her father, Jerome Borden and Andrew J. Borden, both sat on the board of directors at the Union Savings Bank. Whether Emma and Lizzie were invited to the December wedding is not sure, and it was reported the nuptials were only attended by the immediate family. Okay, but we do know Lizzie's wedding gift of $100 went unrecognized. There was no thank you card or visits from the newly married Mrs. Charles B. Pierce. Information courtesy of the Fallover Herald. Two, on October 12, 1903, a fire broke out at the A.J. Borden building at the E.P. Charlton and Company offices there. It was logged in at the fire station under the uh, uh, under explosion of boiler. 1903 was the year Lizzie was forced to remove Joseph H. Tetralt from her home. Tetralt had been a hairdresser in Fall River, and many women about Fall River fell to his charms. He was living at the time in one of Lizzie and Emma's buildings at 394 Spring Street that was operating as a boarding house. In 1889 or 1899, he was offered the job as coachman at the Borden's new house on French Street, where he unpacked his things in their attic room. Gossip began circulating soon after, some hinting that Emma was none too pleased with the handsome Tetralt's position. The institution, the insinuations finally caused Lizzie to let him go in 1903 and replace him with Frederick W. Cogshall. Mr. Cogshall did not last long. Joseph Tetralt was reinstated the same year. Number three, a more serious fire blasted out the windows of Anawan Street as the A.J. Borden building once again ignited on January 28, 1905. Once again, I'm gonna, let me stop there real quick. For the five people that just came on, I apologize. There were technical uh, difficulties going on with the, uh, with, the, with the other show, so I went ahead and canceled it because I was going to come back on at 7 to see if I could clear them up, and she preferred to come on another day, so she'll be on. Not this week, not this coming week, but the week after, because she's going out of town. So I'm going to get that scheduled after I get done here. Um, so I've decided to go ahead and read the next hour of Lizzie Borton. Okay, so that's where we're at. So I don't know what was going on with the technical difficulties. Next time I'll probably make it a phone, a, t a telephone interview as well. I think it was coming from her end, so who knows? Okay, so let's go ahead. All right, let's go ahead and continue with this. All right, number three. A more serious fire blasted out the windows of Anawan Street as the A.J. Borden building once again ignited on January 28, 1905. Once again, E.P. Chapman and company were the recipients of the epicenter of the fire. A rag or something flammable resting close to steam pipes blew the Chapman and company office, below the Chapman Company offices was said to be the cause. The destruction of the Borden building was vast, with many businesses housed there ruined. Aldi, the office of Charles C. Cook, the Borden sister's agent, was spared. The damages resulted in 12655 64 paid out in insurance to Lizzie and Emma, with an additional 24167 paid by the tenant's insurance for destroyed contents. 1905 was the year Emma left Lizzie and French Street behind, a split that had been building for at least two years. The fire was reported, reported early in the morning at 810. The following morning at 7.48, the fire member called back when it rekindled. A fire would not be the only thing marking 1905 as coincidental in Lizzie's orbit of strange happenings. 
four. On May 3rd, 1905, another fire at one of the Borden sisters' properties made of brick was reported. The strange entry of unnecessary a strange entry of unnecessary was listed as the cause. August 24, 1906, another fire on Borden property, this time a wooden structure, and again the culprit was listed as unnecessary. Number six, 1907 was rife with smoke and flames. Interestingly, it is the year Lizzie's favorite chauffeur, Joseph Turrell, departs her employee for good. August 3rd of that year, the A.J. Borden building was once again the destination of the Fall River Fire Department. The Rogers and Allen School of Business sustained minor loss compared to the Charlton Fire, 143 in damages. The Borden property at 394 Spring Street, the residence of Lizzie's chauffeur in 1899, was called in with soot in the chimney, listed as the cause. Number seven, in 1908 and 1909, two more fires hit properties owned by Lizzie and Emma. Samuel Jones's jewelry store at 234 South Main Street and Leopold Tillis's tailor shop and home at 228 South Main Street, respectively. Both resulted in minor damage. Number eight, earlier in December and January of 1901, two fires, that's two fires, threatened the late Andrew J. Borden properties. 184 South Main Street exploded after a workman set a match to a new gas meter beneath the store of McManus and Company. Clothing and men's furnishings. The gas had been leaking for some time before the meter man struck the match that December morning. Two months later, in February, a fire threatened to destroy several buildings as a strong wind fanned the flames of 238 South Main Street at the corner of Spring. The corner, Andrew Borden's Birchland, was hit again 15 years later. That Fall River had its share of fires is an understatement, but that so many befell Andrew Borden's properties, 16 fires in all, may have caused more than one person to raise an eyebrow, perhaps just like the fairy house. Money was preferable to property ownership, or was the arsonist acting out for emotional reasons only? We have no proof, only surmises, that once again shroud the saga of Lizzie Borden in mystery. A monument for the Bordens. For those of you just coming in, there were technical issues with the Ramsland interview, so I cut it off. She's going to rebook with us uh, the week after next to be on. So in the meantime, we're reading from our usual Sunday reading book. We usually read for an hour. Lizzie Borden. A monument for the Bordens. When money in hand, Lizzie and Emma Borden commissioned the Smith Granite Company of Westerly, Rhode Island to create a monument solidifying the Borden's position in Fall River. Oak Grove Cemetery, Oak Grove Cemetery, where Abby and Andrew Borden were buried, along with Sarah Morse Borden, their mother, and little Alice Esther Borden, their sister, who had died so young, was the resting place of Fall River's elite. The Borden Monument must be in good taste, utilizing the best in materials. Lizzie and Emma settled on a tall structure with a concave base and four grave markers set at the odd angle to the monument. The finest New England blue marble was used, with a total cost of 2124 On January 4, 1895, the final resting place of the two murder victims was anchored by the stately monument, bearing the name Borden in chisel letters. It was not the most ornate in the cemetery. It was simple and of classic design. As would always be the case, a small crowd gathered to watch the workmen erect the statue. They were rewarded by a brief glimpse of Lizzie and Emma Borden as the sisters stepped quickly from a carriage to critique the placement of the markers and the overall presentation. They hurriedly returned to the carriage and exited the grounds. The onlookers, however, did not. 
It was reported that no less than 50 people swarmed the newly marked graves, leaving it a muddy mess. A constant stream of visitors filed past the monument throughout the day. Wedding bells for Lizzie. For Lizzie Borden, the local press would forever use their black ink to stain her reputation and inflict pain. Among the cruel jokes laid down at her expense were two reports of her wedding nuptials. The Fall River hang on a second. The Fall River Daily Globe, once again, in order to create a sensation, ran the following. Wedding bells. Fall River Globe, Fall River, Massachusetts, December 10, 1896. A rumor to the effect that Miss Lizzie A. Borden of French Street is soon to marry a Mr. Gardner of Swansea has gained wide circulation about the city in Swansea, where it is pretty generally credited. A local modista is now engaged in making an elaborate trousseau for Miss Borden. It has been given out that the garments are for a European trip. But as one of the dresses is known to be a beautiful white satin creation, the knowing ones simply smile when asked about the matter. It is said the affair will take place about Christmas or New Year's. Another wedding announcement made the papers on February 21st. No year was given, stating she was engaged to one of the jurymen who acquitted her. It is, prob it is probable the piece from December 10th, 1896, caused her the most embarrassment, as the Mr. Gardner they mentioned was no doubt her cousin, Orrin A. Gardner, the elusive bachelor of Swansea. Orrin would later become a dear friend and confidant to Emma Borden. He was years younger than both sisters and was undoubtedly humiliated by the wedding announcement, linking him with one of Fall River's most infamous, la infamous ladies. Lizzie wrote to the Modiste, well, Modiste, I think I'm saying it right, Modiste, if I, somebody, you know, this one was hinted out of the Globe, Globe's ugly rumor of Mrs. William Cummings to apologize. I am more sorry than I can tell you that you have had any trouble over the false and silly story that has been about that has been about the last week or so. How or where it started, I have not the least idea. It was signed sincerely, L.A. Borden. There goes the neighborhood. By January of 1896, Lizzie and Emma could already gauge the temperature of their of their Hill residence. Although only residing on French Street for less than three years, they were acutely aware that the society divas who wrote out party and wedding invitations on Gilded Stationery did not include the Borden sisters on her guest list. Only a few old friends called to see their beautiful parlor and dining room, or to exclaim with delight and awe at the lovely stained glass windows in Tiffany's sconces. It was perhaps this periphery shutout that caused Lizzie to go on the warpath, if Emma had hoped for a quiet, invisible existence. After all the exposure and pain she had gone through on her younger sister's behalf, it was not to be. In fact, it was just heating up. Lizzie's first target was her neighbor, Mr. James Kenny. She wrote to him complaining of his chickens in her yard and his small dog barking throughout the summer. She had the audacity to ask the man to get rid of the dog or keep him full-time within the house. Mr. John H. Brayton was the recipient of another of Lizzie's poison pen letters on May 31, 1900, when she wrote him to complain of his bird keeping her awake and making her nervous. The Braytons lived across the street, and to the west of Lizzie, a distance that would impede most, most birds' songs, especially a little bird, but, with her library windows open, the shrill tweeting could have carried across the street. Lizzie's love of animals had been a long-standing assumption, evidenced by her involvement in the Animal Rescue League of Fall River, an organization to which she left over $30,000 when she died. It is possible it was not the animals that bothered her so much, as it was their owners. 
if her neighbors would not include her in their social gatherings, then she would retaliate by making their lives miserable. If it was if it was through their pets, so be it. The furry and feathered friends of the hills populace were not Lizzie's only targets. Her neighbors' children were up for grabs as well. In the spring of 1902, Lizzie called the Fall River Police to put an end to the taunting and vandalism she had been subjected to for years. Her complaints were against the neighborhood children who played despicable tricks such as trampling over her lawn, lambasting the side of her house with decayed eggs, ringing the doorbell at late hours, tying the doors, and calling Miss Borden vile names when she came to the door. As the report appeared in the Fall River Daily Globe, it appears Edmund Porter was still getting the scoop from the local police department. None came of the, nothing came of the reports, although the police did stake out Miss Borden's home dressed in plain clothes, which fooled no one. As the children were the offspring of the Hills elite, no arrests or warnings were forthcoming. Chapter 37 Spinning Out of Control The allegations of Lizzie's affinity for theft are legion. Some were proven, others attached to her by opportunity, means, and intent. Officer Harrington approached Andrew Borden in 1891, informing him that the burglary of Abby's things on 2nd Street was committed by none other than Andrew's own daughter, Lizzie. Another theft, six years later, when Lizzie's father was no longer around to hush it up, made headlines. Charged with stealing, warrant issued for the arrest of Lizzie Borden. The newspaper banners were everywhere. None happier to announce the scandal than the Fall River Daily Globe, the story centered around a prominent jewelry store in Providence, Rhode Island, the Tilden Thurber Company. In February 1897, the newspapers reported that Lizzie, a frequent visitor to that city and customer of that jeweler, had allegedly stopped there, and after leaving, it was noted two small painted porcelains were missing. Mr. Henry Tilden was informed about the missing items. Sometime afterward, a woman, believed to be Mrs. Preston Hicks Gardner, a friend of Emma and Lizzie's, brought one of the porcelain pieces to be cleaned. It was recognized as one of the art pieces missing. Upon questioning, Mrs. Gardner told the establishment the porcelain was a gift from Lizzie Borden. The police were notified and Detective Frank H. Parker was called in. Upon arriving at Lizzie's residence on French Street, he soon discovered the second painted porcelain. When asked about the piece and the one brought in by Mrs. Gardner, Lizzie said she brought them both at the, or she bought them both at the store of the Tilden and the Thurber Company, the Thurber Company, paying sixteen dollars apiece for them. The jeweler claimed the price tag for the porcelains was one hundred dollars for the pair. The disparity in price tags gives one to doubt Lizzie's estimate. Was it possible she never looked at the price, but merely saw something she liked and took it? The Fall River Globe read the story, adding the most strenuous effort was made to squelch the story. Even the Boston papers were silenced. The Providence Chief of Police confirmed the arrest for Lizzie was legitimate and had been issued, but never served. Andrew Jennings, still on retainer, refused to speak to reporters other than to say he did not believe the story. The matter was handled in a discreet manner, and the headlines went away. It was believed Lizzie settled with the prestigious jewelry store, and full restitution was made. Stories of Lizzie's sticky fingers abounded. Area papers reported she was being shadowed by Pinkerton detectives on suspicion that she has been seen shoplifting in Boston. Fall River gossip mongers declared the stores there kept a watchful eye on Lizzie as she perused their aisles. Kinder tongues called it a compulsion, while harsher minds labeled her insane. The papers hounded Lizzie Borden in the years following her acquittal. 
and the various gossip columns, any reporting of the Heels inhabitants, even if it was a simple excursion about town, would somehow mention they were neighbors of Lizzie Borton. Her name appeared like a watermark, faint but always obvious beneath the print. The rumor that no doubt caused Lizzie the highest anxiety was the one run by the New Bedford Mercury. Quotes, Although Miss Borden was arraigned and tried, she was not tried on the charge of having murdered her mother. This charge having been dropped when the jury returned a verdict of not guilty in the Andrew J. Borden case. The only way in which the matter could possibly be reopened was a mistrial on the charge of murder of Mrs. Borden. When Attorney Dalton was interviewed concerning the story, he stated the case could not be reopened under any circumstances, even if new evidence was found. Aside from 7 French Street, which was renumbered 306 when the address was changed in 1898, was probably heard all the way to Swansea. All Hallows Eve, 1901, 1902. Come away from the window, Lizzie, Emma said, a scene reminiscent of the first year they had lived in the house. She pulled the lace curtain from her sister's hand, where she had been holding it aside, as she watched the French Street parties. Windows were aglow with gaslights, and pumpkins lined the carved stone steps outside the festooned mansions. Children, adorned with straw masks and oversized costumes, darted about the streets, their elongated shadows following closely behind them. Laughter and music wafted into the Morton sisters' second-floor library through the open window. Emma shivered in the autumn chill and quickly closed it as a swirl of orange and red leaves rose on the soft breeze and kissed the window pane. The two women sat in the soft glow of the sitting room that ran the length of the front of the house. Bookcases, laden with classics and poetry, adorned the walls, giving a dual purpose to the room. It was here Emma and Lizzie spent their evening hours when they were both in residence, which had become less frequent. A strain as insidious as poison ran through the relationship. The unbreakable bond that had never faltered during the long ordeal of Lizzie's arrest, imprisonment, and trials now began to fracture. Emma longed for calm and to fade quietly from public judgment and voyeurism. Lizzie, in typical fashion, turned her back on her detractors and did so as she pleased, usually the detriment of those in her orbit, usually to the detriment of those in her orbit. As the two sisters sat in their Victorian elegance, perhaps wishing the fireplace that anchored the room was functional, the sound of singing came from the front of the house, just beneath the sitting room windows. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her father 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her, okay, I'm sorry, yeah, she gave her father 41. I think the first one was supposed to be mother, but it's written father. Sorry, that's just how it's written. As the sisters pushed themselves from their chairs to a standing position, the front doorbell shrilled. The high-pitched noise went on without reprieve until Lizzie crammed her palms against her ears, her face red with anger. Emma hurried out through the double doors and down the front stairs. Moments later, the sound of the front door opening preceded the Opening preceded the sudden cessation of the bell. Lizzie slowly lowered her hands, her heart pounding. She pushed the pin curls from her broad forehead and tugged on her blouse waist. Her ears were still ringing, but not enough to miss what came next. Andrew Borden is now Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up into heaven he will sing, on the gallows she will swing. Emma ran up the stairs to find her sister doubled over, clutching the back of a sofa. An old restraint came over her. For once she would have reached for Lizzie to comfort her. Her hands remained at her side, limp with resignation. They can't hurt you, Lizzie, she said, her voice thick with exhaustion. 
They're only children acting out what their parents had told them. Stay away from the window. With that, Emma left the room and walked a few steps to her bedroom. As she turned to shut the door, she caught the sight of Lizzie, of Lizzie's back once again, straightened in determination. Just as she eased the large wooden door to a close, the sound of splatting eggs hitting the side of the house could be heard. The Borden sister house at 306 French Street had become Fall River's haunted house. Hilda Guilford, whose home was only a few streets over on Lincoln Avenue, was one of the children who delighted in playing pranks on Lizzie. The daughter of a Fall River jeweler, she along with her sisters, Dorothy and Helen, would draw straws with other Hill children and dare to see who would have to dash up to Lizzie's door and put a pin in the doorbell, causing it to ring incessantly. They would then back away, hiding behind trees and bushes, to see if the murderer would answer the door. According to the wonderful book Parallel Lives, Hilda recalled decades later that she envisioned an axe coming out of every window. The early 1900s. As Fall River rang in the new year, celebrating the turn of the century in 1900, there were rapid changes on the horizon. The city was the largest cotton cloth manufacturing center in America, with 87 mills. Women's fashions were becoming more daring, a corset less restrictive, and bloomers were being worn for the newfound thrill of biking. Inside the home, modern conveniences and mass-manufactured furniture were giving the happy homemaker more free time and an inexpensive way to decorate. For someone with money, travel was an ever-present luxury to be plumbed to the dregs. Ford Model Ts and Stanley Steamers rumbled and belched their way along the along the roadways, macadamized roadways. Sorry about that. While electric trolley cars were taking over the horse-drawn variety. The shrill twill of phones and the bright light of electricity now filled most homes and businesses. Mail was still delivered twice a day, but now one could have it delivered to their door instead of making a dual trip to the post office each morning and afternoon. The world was getting smaller, perhaps no more obvious than within the walls of 306 French Street. Lizzie's bizarre behavior, rather than being quelled after her acquittal, intensified. It may have been a frightening time for Emma, who, aware of her sister's mood swings and blind rage, was seeing the behavior acted out in ways she could not have expected. Lizzie was making enemies throughout the hill with her poison pen letters and overt actions. The first head to roll was Mr. James Kenny, who lived in the home to the east of her. Lizzie's letters to the gentleman asking him to sell or shut up his dog, as well as wrangle his stray hens, culminated in her asking the man to move his entire house. She bought his home through her agent, Charles Cook, rented it back to Kenny, and then asked him to move it away so she could own the lot next to hers and have the space. In 1898, after many heated exchanges, the Kennys had their home relocated to Madison Street, with one caveat on Lizzie's end. She wanted to retain the stone that had been their home's foundation or wall. She got her way. Elizabeth Kenny, James F. Kenny's granddaughter, recalled years later that if things did not go the way Lizzie wanted them, she would complain. It may be these and maybe these are the same stones that now line the back property of Maplecroft. Lizzie now had more acreage separating her home from Davenport House from the Davenport House. That sat just east of the now vacated Kenny lot. She joined with the Swifts to the west of her in purchasing the small lot abutting her home on the west, giving her even more space and a gesture of friendship, Emma Lake, wife of Edward B. Lake, who lived across French Street from Lizzie 
offered to buy the lot west of the lake home that separated their house from the Braytons and half of it with Lizzie. And half it with Lizzie. The desire was to give the area around Lakes and Lizzie's homes a spacious park-like atmosphere. And so, in 1898, Lizzie joined Emma Lake and bought up, and bought up even more of her Friend Street neighborhood. In, in Emma Lake, Lizzie found a friend. The two women ran back and forth from each other's homes, shopped together, and became close companions. In 1895, at the age of 41, Emma Lake gave birth to a son, Russell, and he became a fixture at the Borden's house. Russell recalled that Lizzie came over to their house frequently, and he and his mother visited her just as often. He remembered her as a kind and a good woman. Lizzie was his best customer at his lemonade stands. Emma Borden, he remembered, as a quiet and assuming lady. Russell remembered sitting on his veranda at the lake house on French Street, seeing, excuse me, all right, my allergies. Seeing, see, never have allergies. Seeing the hacks pulling up in front of Lizzie's house, pointing to it with their whip and telling their paying customers that the notorious Lizzie Borden lived there. He said people would gather outside stores to watch for her when they saw her coach parked in front. She began to, to avoid the public, retiring farther into the shadows of her home and moving into the rooms farthest removed from the street. The newly acquired part ownership in the lot west of Lake's house was confirmed in writing with both Emma Lake, with both Emma, you know, both Emma Lake and Lizzie Borden affixing their signatures to it in 1898. In 1911, they had a more formal agreement drawn up utilizing Lizzie's neighbor, John Tuttle Swift, who happened to be an attorney, stating that neither property will sell off their half without the consent of the other. So far, so good. But as it always was with Lizzie, things never remained calm for long. A fallout occurred between the friends. In 1913, Lizzie erected one of her famous spite fences along the property division line of her half of the lot, effectively ruining the park-like setting. The tension between the two women, which was reported in the Boston Sunday Herald, had been strained for some time. It may have been the result of some strange occurrences happening on French Street in 1905 strain between Emma and Lizzie. Emma began spending more time away from Lizzie. One of her favorite destinations was, was Holmes, the summer home of her dear friends, the family of Charles Holmes. The Holmes were there for the Borden sisters all throughout the trials, and it was, it was to their home in Fall River Lizzie and Emma first came after the acquittal. Emma stayed in close contact with the family, visiting their spacious farm sitting in Rochester, Rochester, Massachusetts, as often as possible. The homes were famous for their parties, and their invitations were so much sought after. Oddly, by 1898, Lizzie's name no longer appears on their guest list, but Emma was always welcome. It was rumored that for whatever reason, the homes had cut Lizzie. In 1902 and 1904, Emma had overnight visits from, from the homeland, at the homelands, both occurring near the anniversary date of the murders of her father and stepmother, leaving Lizzie to deal with the tragic shadows of the past on her own. For Emma Borden, the ties she had forged with friends grew stronger while Lizzie's frayed and became cut altogether. Emma had always been the family liaison, writing to Borden and Morse relatives and keeping in touch. John Morris deferred, deferred to her for family information, referring the, to, referring the police to her when they asked about nearby relatives. John also admitted he had never had a letter from Lizzie in his life. It was clear that people were more to Emma. Now, people were more to Emma than stepping stones to success. They offered unconditional love and a safe harbor. Two things missing from her life were Lizzie, 
Okay. Whether it was due to their disparate personalities, Lizzie's ongoing feuds with their neighbors, the ambiguous spotlight that played upon their lives, or other more upsetting reasons, the strain between the two sisters was growing. Rumors of Lizzie's closeness with her coachman and chauffeur, Joseph Tetrault, who was in residence at the Borden home on French Street in the early 1900s, was still causing Fall River tongues to wag. With Emma's more frequent departures from home, had Lizzie found companionship in another denizen of her Victorian home? It would not be the relationship that provided the gossip for many, a breakfast table on the hill, beyond the gaslights. <sighs> Sorry about that. Some of my allergies are really bad. In a world filled with warriors, literally peering through the windows of Lizzie's life, is it any wonder she found solace and escape within the darkness of theaters? She attended plays at the Academy from her home on 2nd Street, often securing tickets the moment they went on sale from her friend, Alice Russell, who worked for the owner. With Fall River now reporting her every move, she chose theaters in nearby Boston and New York City. As the gaslights dimmed and the curtain rose, Lizzie lost herself amidst the fake sets and dramatic rotations. The tragedies played out before the audience in grand gestures and climatic effects titillated her psyche, so prone to drama. Here, in the darkness, she was invisible, with a world of fantasy providing an escape from a life all too fraught with reality. It was here, amidst the accolades and adulation of the theater-going audience, that Lizzie first saw and became obsessed with the famous actress Nance O'Neill. Nance O'Neill was born Gertrude Lamson in Oakland, California. On April 8, 1874, her sister Lillian had garnered success as a stage actress. Excuse me. And Nance soon followed, soon followed in her footsteps, making her debut in 1893. She was introduced to noted director-actor Arthur Rankin, who took her under his wing. Their relationship was a roller coaster ride of triumph and financial strain. The world of the actor and the Gilded Age came without a safety net. If the ticket sales were good and the reviews even better, you were rolling in cash. Just as quickly, if the seats were vacant and the critics vicious, you found yourself living in abandoned rooms or at the generosity of friends. It was the latter role that Lizzie Borden was to play in part, to, to play a part in the tragedy of her own creation. Nancy's fame, Nancy's fame grew as an, as an enigmatic actress whose face could portray any emotion. She was soon playing to audiences in Australia, New Zealand, Egypt, South Africa, and England. 1900 saw her rise to glory. 1902 saw her fall. The company's fortunes were in trouble. Reviews of her performances were mixed, and in 1902, the actress and her troupe returned to America. But in 1904, as the fickle hand of fate turned once again, Nancy's star glittered, this time in Boston, the Boston Globe enthused. Her hair is a beautiful light and natural golden hue, her eyes of deep blue and wonderfully attractive, and her face, strongly marked in feature, has a mobility such as scarcely more than one actress in a generation is privileged to possess. In Boston, Nance played the Columbia Colonel, Hollis Street, and Tremont. I'm sorry, in Boston, Nance played the Columbia Colonial, Hollis Street, and Tremont Theaters. Her Lady Macbeth was hailed as a superb performance, while her Magda was touted as realistic and thrilling. Her sold-out performances were met, up, were met with up to a dozen curtain calls, and among the fans rising to their feet and cheering with unabashed enthusiasm was Lizzie Andrew Borden. 
After one such performance, Lizzie returned to her Boston hotel and wrote to the actress, telling her of her admiration and asking permission to meet her. A floral bouquet accompanied the note. Lizzie was granted permission and met the actress backstage at the Tremont Theater. We do not know if Nance knew who her new admirer was, but a friendship was formed. Fourteen years Lizzie's junior, Nance at 30 and Lizzie at 44, began a friendship that may have had an additional advantage for the actress, and one of which a woman such as Lizzie, unaccustomed to letting people gain access to her, may have misunderstood. Nance continued to play New England with stops in Fall River. On February 3, 1905, she played at the Academy amid tepid reviews. reviews. She was said to be suffering from a cold, and her performance of Elizabeth, the Queen of England, suffered for it. It was this performance at Fall River that started the rumor mills churning faster than the spindles in the city's cotton factories. Newspapers reported Miss Borden's carriage awaited after the play, and together they went to Miss Borden's home. The entertainment afforded Miss O'Neill Miss O'Neill is said, however, to have been of the quietest character, owing to the actress being ill from overwork, and was conducted, such as one friend might give another. This paled in comparison to another visit from the actress to Lizzie's home, where she and her company were entertained in high style. An orchestra caterer hired palm trees and, and amenities the best money could buy were all lavished on the, on the theater group. For once, it was Lizzie's house whose windows blazed with lights and music could be heard along French Street, wafting through her lace curtains. It must have been a moment she cherished. Has she finally arrived? Lizzie once again opened her pocketbook to fund a week-long house party in Tingsboro, Massachusetts. Miss O'Neill had a country place there where Lizzie had been an invited guest on occasion. She named it O'Neill Manor and filled it with dogs, parrots, and monkeys. Its 200 acres accommodated horses, which the actress loved to ride. Lizzie invited the entire troop to her rented house in, Tin- in, in Tingsboro, and for a week wined and dined her new friends. The relationship between Lizzie and Nance has been one of the speculation. In later years, when asked about Miss Borden, Nance said of Lizzie, Nance said of Lizzie she had gray eyes and graying hair, with an unmistakable air of refinement and, t- and intellect. She spoke of Lizzie's fondness for travel and her kindness to animals. Nance went on to mention her insight into Lizzie's life. She seemed utterly lonely. She was always so alone. Nance stated they became friends and remained friends through, though only in memory, and they never met again after she finished her season in the East. She admitted to being rather, uh, rather a poor correspondent and never exchanged letters with Lizzie, saying we were like ships that passed in the night and speak to each other only in passing. While the ships passed, Nance gave Lizzie hope that the friendship was one of lasting fondness. In 1904, Nance presented Lizzie with an expensive book of poetry, edged in gold gilt and festooned with laurel wreaths. The poems of Thomas Bailey Aldrich bore a dedication to Lizzie in Nance's own hand. For my dear Lisbeth, with love from Daphne O'Neill Manor. I'm sorry. For my dear Lisbeth, with love from Daphne O'Neill Manor. Kingsborough, Massachusetts, June 13, 1904. Here we see the first glimpse of the name Lizzie would come to call herself only one year later, Lisbeth. It may have been a reflection of old English homage, or simply an affectionate nickname, but Lizzie loved it and adopted it to alter the image she now sought to present. Daphne may have been a nod to the Greek nymph, daughter of the river, daughter of the river guard, Peneus, pursued by Apollo. 
Nance may have portrayed her once in a play. The inscription is one of affection, and doubtless filled Lizzie's lonely heart with happiness. Thenceforth, she became Lisbeth Andrews Borton. The addition of the S to Andrew is correct. Sadly, the facade of friendship began to melt, like snow beneath the early summer of the spring. Two of Nance's troops asked Lizzie for loans, of which, she, of which were never repaid. By 1906, the actress and her friends disappeared from Lizzie's life. It is analogs to the story of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald and the friends who came for his parties but were gone with the rising sun. Left behind was the scent of scandal. Many Puritans in Fall River hinted of a homosexual affair between Lizzie and the actress. Nance at one time had referred to Lizzie as a quiet, reserved, frail little old-fashioned gentlewoman, which does not smack of sensuality. Whatever the relationship, it appears Emma made herself scarce whenever Nance was to visit their French home street, their French home house, French street home. The actress claimed she never met Lizzie's sister. Emma's disapproval of the friendship may have been the final straw that drove her from the house. It was thought the trouble originated from a disagreement in the winter after Lizzie had given a dinner and entertainment to Nance O'Neill and her company. Quote from the Parallel Lives, the Fall River Historical Society. Thespians, known for their love of parody, may have begun teasing Lizzie during a winter dinner party about her notoriety. Fueled with drink, perhaps a few of the actors took it too far by reenacting the murders through a humorous sketch. If Emma, ever, if Emma overheard it from the sanctuary of her room, it would have been too much. She was already dealing with Lizzie's unconventional friendship with Joseph Tetrell. Anyway, I'm trying. <laughs> Call him Joseph T. Their coach, their coachman, and now this. As mentioned, Lizzie had sent Tetrault, I think that's it, away, only to rehire him, setting tongues wagging all over Fall River. Emma leaves. Emma's decision to finally leave her 44-year-old sister is one that must have come after agonizing soul-searching. She had been with Lizzie through the toughest times imaginable. Finally, she turned to her dear friend, Reverend Buck, for counseling. Emma admitted matters reached such a pass that I could not stay longer in the same house as Lizzie. As Lizzie. Reverend Buck listened carefully to Emma's concerns and said finally it was imperative that I should make my home elsewhere. It is interesting that even though Reverend Buck passed away in 1903, Emma stayed in the house until 1905. Nance O'Neill was not on the scene in 1903. Perhaps Lizzie's friendship with Mr. Tetralt, I think I got it right now, it only took like 800 tries, was what caused Emma to confide in the Reverend. As a man of the church, he would not likely advise her to leave Lizzie, unless the transgression she shared with him was one likely to hurt her soul. Although Lizzie had troubles with stealing, a sin the church would frown upon, unmarried for an unmarried fornication would be far more serious. The split was so grievous that Emma later stated, I do not expect to set foot on the place, set foot on the place while Lizzie lives. Emma's words were from a rare interview she granted to the Boston Sunday Herald in 1913. She was living with the late Reverend Buck's five unmarried daughters. The Mrs. Buck, she told the reporter she would do her duty in answering the cruel slanders that had been made against her and Lizzie, both in public print and by gossiping persons who seemed to delight in saying cruel things about her. I am still going to do it in defending my sister, even though circumstances have separated us. Thus, according to newspaper reports, 
in May 1905, Miss Emma packed up her belongings, called a moving wagon, and shook the dust from the French street home, of the French street home, from her feet. Ever since her departure, the tongues of gossip have been wagging tremendously, even for Fall River, which is saying a great deal. By 1906, Emma is listed as living in Providence, Rhode Island, spending time with the gardeners at their, at their home, Riverby, only minutes from Andrew Borden's upper farm. During this time, the gardeners, relatives, and friends of the Borden sisters estranged themselves from Lizzie, as did the Buck sisters. Lizzie's friends were all but gone. A thief of the night. As the New England snow was setting into the manicured lawns of Fall River's elite in December 1905, everywhere were the signs of Christmas. Store windows laid out sumptuous displays of toys, food, and clothing. The latest and modern conveniences were highlighted, and stores were festooned with garlands and lights. Elaborated and elaborate animated scenes filled the department store windows, turning the season into a fairyland. For those who were happy, it was a magical time of year. For those who were lonely, it was torture. Lizzie decorated her home, trying to put from her mind that this Christmas would be her first without Emma in her life. Forty-four years with her sister, shopping together, opening presents, and talking over plans that ended. Neighbors' windows were ablaze with warm lights and candles. The sound of horses adorned with bells filled the air as sleighs laden with laughing families traveled throughout the hill. A growing panic must have filled Lizzie's head. Changing her name to Elizabeth had done nothing to alter a personality that would snap when faced with abandonment. And Emma, her one constant, had abandoned her. Maids who serviced the large homes surrounding 306 French Street often congregated in the kitchens of their various employers during their time off. Lizzie welcomed them into her home, often laying out tea and pastries for them. They filled the house with much needed laughter. They also provided her with gossip about their employers. Offered up in a mood of joviality, the domestics were unaware that they were furnishing information as to the comings and goings of the people who hired them. Lizzie, whether in the kitchen, where the women were gathered, or close by in the dining room or pantry, may have listened to ascertain when her neighbors would be away from home. On December 18th, 1905, the Fall River Herald reported Mr. and Mrs. Charles T. Kirby of number 39 Belmont Street and their family had been away for the day. They returned in the evening about 10.30 o'clock. Upon arriving home, they were somewhat surprised on noticing that several of the rooms on the second floor were aglow with light, and it only took a few minutes to ascertain that they had unwelcome visitors in their absence. They found that every room showed traces of visits from the intruders. The contents of closets and drawers strewed about the rooms in an evident search for money and jewelry. The police and inspectors believed the thieves were people well acquainted with the Kirby house, and the fact that the family was away. They were not professionals. They did not molest any of the silverware. They left several glass jets burning and had left no clues. A dining room window was found open, forced by use of a jimmy, allowing access to the house. The objects taken are suggestive. A gold ring, a lady's gold watch, a string of gold beads, a silver bracelet watch, two gold studs, three gold stick pins, two silver stick pins, an amethyst ring, a gold bracelet, two belt buckles made of gold and silver, and a Smith and West revolver. The police believed the burglar was probably female. The item stolen spoke to a woman's interest in jewelry. A rumor that a female had been 
canvassing houses lately have been reported, but by whom? The Kirby house was only two houses south of the Bratons, the home across from Lizzie on the corner of French and Belmont. The lot she owned with Mrs. Lake abutted the lawns of the Bratons and their neighbor with towering pies and multiple bushes, a perfect place to walk one's Boston Terrier in the evening hours. On December 19th, the following night, Lizzie's neighbors across the street from her at the Lakes, with whom she co-owned the lot to the west, were also robbed. Newspaper reports stated Edward and Emma Lake, with their family and two visiting house guests, Abby B. Marin and Mrs. F.A. Jenkins, were having dinner in their home. Mrs. Jenkins, returning to the second floor, discovered an open window, which no one recalled having opened. A quick inventory showed over $400 in valuables missing. The open window was next to a veranda post, suggesting the intruder had entered that way. Again, the items stolen were strangely familiar to a burglary at the Andrew J. Borden home in 1891. A gold watch valued at $300, a stick pen worth $17, $12 in money, and a gold chain had been taken from Mrs. Marin. Mrs. Lake's purse on the hall table was missing $35, and her desk had been forced open and rummaged through. Interestingly, the thief had piled together some silver souvenir spoons, but had forgotten them in their haste to escape. A gold lady's watch, watch money was taken from a purse, a desk broken into. Lizzie collected souvenir spoons, as did many people in the area. The craze began with the World's Fair, and the spoons were highly sought after. Had the burglar seen a returning maid from the window of the upstairs room? Was the open window near a veranda post just a ruse? When the culprit had actually walked right in the side of the kitchen door on the east side of the house by the driveway and crept up the back stairs while the family and their guests were dining? Perhaps the perpetrator knew the maid was allowed sometime off that evening after dinner was served, or that she had run an errand. This was the house Lizzie knew well. She and Emma Lake spent many hours together, shopping and roaming each other's houses. Perhaps Lizzie had watched Mrs. Lake purchase some of the items and had coveted them. She certainly would have known exactly where they were kept. Did Lizzie's opera glasses lay ready on the window seat of her second-story library? Both burglaries happened roughly a week before Christmas. A Christmas without Emma. A Christmas filled with angst. There is no proof Lizzie was involved in these burglaries, and the author has taken some liberties in describing scenarios that she, she believes is plausible, especially when compared to a chain of events that follow later years. Did Emma Lake suspect Lizzie of being the burglar? Did it prompt her falling out, resulting in Lizzie's building, building a spite fence down the middle of their shared lot? Emma travels. In 1906, Emma Lenora Borden found her wings. After dedicating her life to her younger sister, the spinster, age 55, set out to see the world, purchasing a first-class ticket aboard the White Star Liner SS Symrick. She departed Boston and arrived in Liverpool, England on June 2, 1906. Letters to her friends, the Brighams, show her touring Europe until her return to Fall River in October that same year. Mary Ella Brigham hosted a party in her honor upon her return. That the Brigham home was so close to Maplecroft, only a few houses over on Belmont Street, may have caused Emma some pain. She once again visited Mary Ella on the morning of December 29th, along with the Buck sisters, while Lizzie celebrated another Christmas season alone. Emma was surrounded by friends only a few houses over. With the local papers continually reporting the excursions of the Spindle City citizens, it is possible Lizzie kept track of her older sister's newfound freedom. 
What effect it may have had on, on her nerves is a question to ponder. Tetrault departs. For reasons unknown, Joseph Tetrault, the famous coachman who may have played a part in Emma's removal from the French Street, from French Street left Lizzie's employee in 1907. Coincidentally, two fires broke out that year inside the Borden sisters' properties. Mr. Mr. Tetrault was replaced by Walter Clayton Fogg. He would act as coachman until 1909 when he was let go due to a complication brought about by his wife, Honora. It seems Mrs. Fogg purchased some new furnishings for their home on Barnaby Street using credit she procured by using Lizzie Borden as a reference as her husband, Walter, was employed by her. When Mrs. Fogg fell behind on her payments, the store went to Lizzie who paid off the bill, but subsequently told Walter he needed to find employment elsewhere. She may have provided him with a letter of recommendation and, remind, and, and remained cordial with him, knowing the situation had been outside his control. Walter Fogg died in 1921, leaving Nora a widow with four children. Eventually, she ran out of money and reached out to relatives who turned her away. Finally, in desperation, two of her daughters appealed to Lizzie Borden for help. They were denied. With Lizzie, once burned, is more than twice shy. It is an unforgivable offense. Maplecroft is born. The tradition of naming one's grand manor or sprawling farmlands was not new to Fall River. Indeed, two of Emma's favorite retreats owned by her friends were Homelands and Riverby Interlochen. The Spencer Borden Mansion was a well-known estate in the area. Stationery sometimes bore the name of these fanciful addresses, and perhaps a discreet sign hung near a gate, but no one on the hill had ever emblazoned the home's name across the front of the property. Either Lizzie Borden or enter Lizzie Borden. Perhaps with fond memories of Nance O'Neill's O'Neill Manor, Lisbeth set out to create a new image for herself. In the tradition of Jane Austen settings and romantic novels such as Wuthering Heights, Miss Borden christened her French street home Maplecroft. The word croft is of old English origin, a lineage of which Lizzie appeared to be fond. The word means a small enclosed field, usually adjoining a house. She had certainly procured additional lands around her home, and it was the stately maples there that had probably lent their name to the house. Maples are native to New England, and they added to her feeling of roots there. By 1908, the calling cards of stationery emanating from the 306 French Street were embossed, Elizabeth of Maplecroft. Lizzie had formed an identity to her liking, one that reflected stature and importance. On September 18, 1909, she made it official by having the name Maplecroft carved into the newly created granite steps leading up to the front door. According to William Henry Savoy, the mason, Lizzie's instructions were very clear, including into which steps she wanted the name carved. It was also in 1909 Lizzie added the large back piazza with an overhead room to the house. In order to make changes to the house, Lizzie was required to contact Emma for permission, as the sisters still jointly owned the home. Permission was granted, and on September 15th, construction began on an addition measuring 14 feet wide by 15 feet in length. Set on a stone foundation, the lakes had recently added onto their home across, hang on a second, I across from her, perhaps prompting the decision in Victorian keeping up with the Jones rule. Lizzie now had her new piazza, complete with stone corner piece, a place to hide from prying eyes. Her new home had a new name, one set in stone for all the world to see. Unfortunately, Fall River, and especially her neighbors on the hill, found the chisel name not only ostentatious, but a grievous mistake. 
Now every curiosity seeker traveling up the Tony streets in search of the famous Lizzie Borden's home would now know exactly where to find her. Once again, the wealthy encircled her wagons and Lizzie was shut out. New servants and companionship. Lizzie's world was shrinking. More and more she found companionship within the walls of Maplecroft, turning into her staff and occasional travel companions for solace and friendship. Her Boston Terriers were constantly on her side as she filled her days with quiet moments on her back piazza, or reading within the security of the large room overhead. She erected birdhouses and fed the squirrels that ran rampant on the tree-lined streets. Perhaps for Lizzie, her domestic help and the animals around her had something in common, something in which she found comfort and peace. They all relied on her for their well-being. In essence, Lizzie held all the cards. She was in control. While it may not have been unconditional love, it was close enough. Perhaps the person within Lizzie's employ who had the strongest impact upon her was a domestic named Hannah Boster Nelson. This dark-haired Swedish immigrant came to work at Maplecroft during the turbulent years when Emma was still in residence. Hannah witnessed much sorrow and doubtless many outbursts and theatrics. With her soft sing-song cadence, she spoke to Lizzie in ways that must have touched the deeply lonely woman. Letters from Lizzie in 1908 to others speak of her fondness for Hannah. We can begin to feel some empathy for this lonely lady of Maplecroft when tragedy once again stains her happiness. Hannah passed away of dysentery on June 3, 1908, in a Rhode Island hospital, where she had languished for some time. She was only 37 years of age. Lizzie was inconsolable, and as before, left alone to roam her opulent rooms on the hill. The two Marys, Mary S. Boucher and Mary A. S. Reynolds, came to Maplecroft to fill Hannah's missing shoes. They may have occupied the large, spacious room on the third floor that would easily house two beds. Lizzie wrote, They are doing very well, but no one knows how I miss my Hannah. Mary Boucher remained with Lizzie for eight years, Miss Reynolds for two, when she departed to marry James A. Dines. Servants typically came and went through a revolving door as their lifestyles and needs changed. For any employer who formed attachments, these sorts of transitions could be difficult at times. Lizzie lost herself inside the pages of her beloved books. Her initials, L.A.B., appear on the flyleaf of many of her favorite tomes. She stated once, I spend much time reading and building castles in the air. Sadly, the castle she built with the inheritance left her by her father's death had become a prison. There would be no reprieve from the public condemnation. The verdict they handed down was possibly crueler than the one the jury of 1893 could have voiced. Emma's Journeys of Happiness. While Lizzie found solace in her books, pets, and domestic servants, Emma, with an unlimited pocketbook, indulged her love of travel. There was a bright, shiny world out there that she had previously only glimpsed in postcards sent her from her well-meaning friends. In early 1908, she found herself on the Golden Coast of California, a place she had dreamed of visiting ever since her friend Mary Ella Brigham sang its praises through her vacation postcards. For several months, Emma visited the beaches and cliff sides of the state and hopped over to Catalina Island. Did she have any regrets about leaving Lizzie and, and the drama behind? If she did, she managed to bury them beneath the glistening sands of the coastline, at least for a time. Orrin Gardner, the hapless fellow who found himself engaged to Lizzie in the Fall River headlines, was extremely close to Emma. They often visited friends together, as they did on the evening of September 15th when they called on Mary Ella Brigham. Once again, Emma was 
was was within walking distance of Maplecroft, yet there was no record she stopped there. On February 2nd, 1910, the Fall River Daily Evening News ran the following blurb under It's Our Folks and Other Folks Gossip Column. Miss Emma Borden of Providence, formerly of the city, and Miss Preston, Mrs. Preston H. Gardner left Wednesday for New Orleans. They will be attending the Mardi Gras festivities and will later spend time in Florida at the winter resorts, returning in about a month. It is highly probable that Lizzie read the article. While strange fires have licked the bricks and wooden structures of Andrew J. Borden's properties in 1908-1909, shows no destruction. If Lizzie had been behind a myriad of fires, there is no record she acted out in retaliation for Emma's travel and friendships. On February 18, 1911, permit number 33 was assigned to Lizzie in response to her request to build a garage at the back of her property. Having once been turned down by the Swifts next door to erect the building on the lot, she shared with them she, she instead set about having one constructed at the rear of the lot that once housed the Kennedy home. The edifice was not an ordinary box-like garage. With white columns and double doors, it reflected taste and desire, and a desire to impress. It still stands today. Its dimensions measured, measured 28 feet wide and 37 feet long, complete with running water and a steam radiator that ran the length of the back wall. It was a modern wonder for that era. The trap door in the room may have been to enable the chauffeur to maintain the undercarriage of a car, or it may have been a home of the, of the machinations that ran the turntable that enabled the car to be rotated, instead of backed out of the structure. F.O. Stanley, the famous inventor of the Stanley Steamer motor car, had just such a device in his garage at his home in Estes Park, Colorado, in 1908. Perhaps Lizzie had read about it. Okay, I'm stopping there. Um, we've got about an hour and 17 minutes left in the book, so we're going to finish this up on Sunday. So this Sunday is going to be our last shot with Lizzie Borden, but uh, thank you guys. It was a confusing night, and... Um, Again, I apologize for whatever was going on. As you can tell, there's no crackling from my end, so something was going on either via the internet or with or, or with the guests' mics and computers. Sometimes happens. Sometimes StreamYard just doesn't you know doesn't work for everybody. But um, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight and, and finding me since I came on. You know, I switched and came on later. She agreed to be on. Like I said, she agreed to be on the week after next. So this is cool. We'll, we'll get her back on because I really wanted to talk to her about that stuff. Tomorrow night, Nancy Matz is going to be here. It's casual Friday with Nancy. And we're going to be talking about relationships. Relationships and the paranormal and, you know, things like that. So that's going to be tomorrow night. So it should be an interesting night. Nancy may just do some relationship readings for you guys, too, if, if you ask nicely. Anyway, um, again, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight and, and, and for staying and hearing me read. I enjoy reading these things online. Uh, please remember, Saturday there's going to be a Psychic Class 1 at 5 p.m. Pacific. Check out California Haunts Meetup for that. And then on the 10th, there will be a another class at 5 p.m. Pacific. Check out the Meetup for that as well. It's going to be Psychic Development 2. Uh, if, if you like what you heard today, it's been kind of crazy. Uh, please, uh, you're watching from uh, Facebook, please, uh, please hit that like button. Okay? Same thing with uh, watching from uh, Twitch or watching from Twitter or any of those other places that, that this shows, please hit that like button and or that join button and uh, you can keep up with us. Uh, YouTube especially. There's a little man in the bottom right hand corner. 
uh, ghost that has a magnifying glass that Sherlock Holmes hat on, please click on that and you become a subscriber to our YouTube page. And that will alert you when we have new shows up because we're we're airing every Monday, every Sunday through through Saturday. I'm sorry, every Sunday through Friday. And uh, we got different shows. And if you go on there, there's 350 shows that you can check out with different topics and different things going on. And I think there's something for everybody. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show or shows, like or you hated what went wrong tonight, share it with five of your enemies. That way you can get even with them, right? But we're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. So that's a cool thing to do. Also, you see that ticker running at the bottom? It's because the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team does not take money to investigate. Some teams do. We don't do that. So in order to keep all this going, to keep the internet going, you know, keep keep the lights on, as they say, it all comes out of my pocket. And if something breaks, boom, i got to fork out the money to buy new computers. In fact, the first year and a half we were on, we lost one of our computers, and I had to buy a whole new computer. And then we lost another computer, and I had to buy another computer. So, I mean, that's just how it is with paranormal investigating. So it's, it's been two computers doing the show. Anyway, it usually comes out of my pocket. So if you could, you know, find it in your heart to help me out a little bit, that'd be great. That's at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, Venmo, and then California Haunts. But I really appreciate you guys coming back over here tonight to hear me read. Um, I promise tomorrow we're not going to have those issues. So we'll be on again with Nancy. Thank you all very much. And I'm going to sign off here. Let me uh, get my buttons. There we go. And I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good evening.